Hey, EMM listeners. We're excited to announce our upcoming event, Palliative, a community educational event exploring the nuance of pediatric palliative care on June 27th at 6.30 p.m. in the Anschutz Health Sciences Building. We will be screening the Emmy-nominated short film, Palliative, featuring Dr. Nadia Tremonti's work providing end-of-life care and easing the suffering of her patients and their families at Children's Hospital of Michigan. The film will be followed by a keynote address by Dr. Tremonti and a panel discussion with experts from Colorado's pediatric palliative care teams. Tickets are $30, and all proceeds will be donated to the Denver Hospice's Footprints Program, the Princess and Superhero Party hosted by Children's Hospital of Michigan, and Emergency Medical Minute. There will be food and drinks served prior to the screening and during a brief intermission. Come join us for a thought-provoking evening with the community for our first event since the pandemic. Check out the link in our show notes to buy tickets. Thank you. Welcome to another episode of On the Streets. I'm your host, Jordan Orada, and with me today is trauma surgeon Bert Katubig. Bert, thanks for being with us today. Not a problem. Thanks for having me. So we've had a lot of questions lately. I talk to crews often about our trauma alerts, trauma activations, alpha bravos, whatever you guys want to call them. Every facility is a little different, but we have a lot of ground level falls of these elderly patients and... There's a, a lot of confusion about, like, why did we activate one versus not activating another? What are the criteria? And and what are the things that make these patients so challenging? And I thought it'd be a fun thing to talk to you about since you see them and you see the, the longer-term care of them. So right. I guess to start, tell us about the criteria and how that's set up. So for any facility, whether it's an HCA system, Denver Health System, University, or even Centura system, we all follow the criteria that, that was set by the RETAC, and those RETAC criteria are also set by the a National Committee on Trauma. And so a lot of it, especially for the geriatric patients, we look at, you know, for the adults, you know, we look for anything in terms of blood pressure, anything less than 110 um, or heart rate high. For the elderly, we actually go even lower. Some people go a heart rate, you know, a blood pressure less than 100 or blood pressure less than 110, so it depends on which hospital you go to. But a lot of that is based on that. And so... And the reason we look at that is we just realize that geriatric patients, it depends on what you define as geriatric patients. If you look at the Committee on Trauma, they define it at 55. Okay. <laughs> do you fall into that yet, Bert? I do. Oh. So it sort of sucks. So I'm considered <laughs> geriatric right now. And so that's the thing. So we look at anybody less than 55. Your hospital may go to 65. Okay. But again, we sort of look at that. And because we're based on, in terms of activations, your highest level of activation, again, whatever it is. You know, we look at specifically the blood pressure. Mechanism does play a role in it, you know, especially if it's a gunshot wound or things like that. But let's say, again, sticking to the ground level falls or a fall from a step ladder or something like that, a low mechanism injury, we primarily look at blood pressure. And so as soon as you tell us a blood pressure less than 100, especially on an elderly patient, we're automatically going to activate, even at 24 hours. So I have a question about that, I guess. Mm-hmm. So we know a lot of these patients are chronically dehydrated. Not mm-hmm. not uncommon for most patients, but especially for the elderly, right? Um, does that play into this much? Um, and should we be thinking about, is that the blood pressure after giving a, a 500 bolus? Right. Um, is that valuable or invaluable? I think it's valuable to a, to a point. The problem is, you know, you may get the 500 cc bolus, and by the time you get to our emergency room, also blood pressure may up a little bit. But then as soon as the paramedics leave and 10 minutes later, they tank, they tank down again. Okay. So I think you're right, especially the elderly, a lot of them dehydrated for whatever reason. They may have had issues of vomiting or having or had issues of diarrhea that nobody knew about. A lot of these patients are on blood pressure medications. A lot of these patients are on beta blockers. 
So until we can work up why this patient is hypotensive, okay, whether it's you know anemia for some other reason, dehydration for some other reason, or something else is going on, you know, once you tell us a low blood pressure, you know, well, and unfortunately, I, I know that a lot of paramedics are concerned about cost of the patient and everything else. I think, in all honesty, all the facilities are sort of modifying that a little bit, taking taking into account again what the patient's cost is going to be, what you know, the paramedics' perception of the cost and everything. So. I think all hospitals are taking that consideration and we'll downgrade if we need to. But I think, you know, once we hear blood pressure this low, we're always going to activate. And then again, once we find out, like I said, a lot of times in the EMS presentation, okay, that was funny. We just talked to a couple of paramedics who didn't get a chance to present whenever they went to the ER. I think when you tell us, you know, doc has things, this and this, then it's perfectly fine. And a lot of times we will eventually downgrade um, or we'll say, okay, now this is more of a medical workup. And so, we do that take consideration, but that's also, again, that's all part of the EMS presentation. You know, if the EMS tells me, yeah, you know, this guy's telling us he's been, you know, hasn't been eating anything for the last couple of days or he's been having a lot of dehydration issues, again, like vomiting or, or diarrhea, things like that, or he just took his blood pressure medicate but hasn't eaten all day because he's working in the garden, I think we do take into consideration and we will downgrade. But, again, it's because of the initial, you know, National Committee on Trauma looking at specifically these blood pressure things. And I think they just made it easy by just saying, hey, blood pressure is this you automatically ask for the highest level of care. This way, there's no thinking process about it. And in all honesty, we're not also influenced by saying, okay, yeah, you know, I heard you, but then all of a sudden we get influenced and all of a sudden we fall behind the A-track, or the A-track, nobody uses A-tracks anymore. But we fall, we fall behind the eight ball, because now in our mind, we'll say, okay, the paramedic told us this, so I'm gonna work this up and I'll find out we missed something else, because now the CAT scan shows me this guy's got a bleed. And that's one thing with geriatric patients, we all think it's head bleed, but we've had geriatric patients who have fallen down and have had a hip fracture and bled into the pelvis because they're on Eliquis or Zeralto, or they've had bad pubic rami fractures that they're actually bleeding into that. We have to actually have to embolize those things in, in radiology. So that's the issue. I'm glad you brought that up because that was going to be another question. Is the head bleed the biggest risk? We know that as people get older, the brain shrinks a little bit, creates more space to bleed into. And and if you did have bleeding into the brain, would that would increase your pressure, right? right. Um, but while that is a risk, their all their bones are more feeble and any kind of fracture creates a lot of space to bleed into Correct. right so i mean good trauma exam is paramount on mm -hmm. these and high index of suspicion on any elderly patient right Correct. are there any special modifications to exam that would be valuable for ems i think for the ems like you were saying jordan you know the, the head injury stuff we were you know then we get more interested in mental status changes okay as far as you know hemorrhagic shock Okay, or volume shock, basically. You know, that is either, that could be from a rib fractures, that could be from something in your abdominal, um, that could be from pelvic fractures. As you already know, you know, you can lose about two or three liters of blood or fluid into the open book pelvis. You can lose about one liter of blood or fluid into each thigh if you have a bad femur fracture. So the biggest thing that we look from the paramedics when they bring in somebody, again, with a low mechanism of injury, but hypotensive, you know, we're listening to you, because you know, a lot of times you guys will tell us what the abdominal exam is. Or are you going to tell us if you see any open fractures? Or are you going to tell us, you know, what does the thighs look like? You know, if all of a sudden, you know, you tell me that, you know, his left thigh is twice as big as his right thigh, that's the first thing we're going to, we're going to, we're going to look at because we have concerns about there. But then, again, also when you guys tell us your cardiac exam, you know, if you tell me this guy's got a murmur or something like that or a mechanic, you know, even if, the, even if the guy can't tell you anything, if you got a murmur or if you hear a, a constant clicking, you know, constant clicking is a mechanical valve until proven otherwise. So you already know those guys are on, on, on anticoagulants. So I think, like I said, a, you know, a good exam, listening to the heart, listening to the lungs, that can get you something. 
but the heart, especially the patient that's not responsive to you, listen for a mechanical click consistent with the valve, okay? Listen for a large holocystoc moment, which could be in an MI, and the valves aren't working, so blood's flowing back and cross through both diastolic and systolic function. Um, lungs, yeah, you can listen for lungs to see if you have any decreased breath sounds, which you may think either in pneumothorax or, or hemothorax. So I think that, you know, the, the paramedic exam, as well as their presentation, um, during the timeout that all facilities are supposed to be giving them, I think that's a key point. Um, and again, and, and then looking at their thighs, because, again, you can lose a lot of stuff into the thighs. Well, and I think the history, like you alluded to, these patients are typically on a lot more medications than younger patients. Mm -hmm. A lot of them don't really remember what meds they're taking, right? So right. if we can get med lists from a facility or looking in the fridge for med lists and DNRs in the freezer on the back of the door, wherever patients are keeping these and or trying to get a good phone number for family, that, I mean, for you guys is so important, right? right. Totally agree. Uh, We've had actually patients thought that Coumadin was a pain medication. So like, <laughs> These oh, are our yeah. people, right? Right. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, a lot of the, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the, what we're seeing now, especially in our area, a lot of dementia patients, um, or elderly patients, you know, and unfortunately, some, you know, some elderly abuse patients. And so, but that's why we activate at 24 hours, because we just don't know what's causing it. But that's why all hospitals for geriatric patients will activate anything less than 100. And, that, and I think it's so good to know, too, that those activations can be stood down. And sometimes I talk to crews and they're like, well, you know, the blood pressure was only 98, but we're, we're, we're thinking about fudging it up to 102 just so they wouldn't fall into the criteria to try to protect the patient from, from charges that maybe they don't need. And, and I would say, I, I appreciate where you're coming from and being a patient advocate, but their care comes first. And if we determine in pretty short order that this patient doesn't need the alert or activation, we will downgrade it exactly. and they won't get those charges, right? Correct. Um, so I think, and that is universally becoming the practice? I think it's universally becoming the practice, at least, at least for the HCA systems. Okay. Yeah, I hard know, to speak for others. Right, right, it's hard to say for others. I do know the other trauma surgeons, there's a couple of other Centura systems, I think they're doing that also, but I can't, I, again, I'm not part of their billing system, so I don't yeah. know, or at least for it's a hospital system. You know, and it's truly based on the hospital system. Physicians, you don't do that sort of. We just, that's not our billing system. But I think the hospitals are, are understanding that and the paramedics concern because I'd hate for a paramedic to have to fudge something. But like you said, though, you know, if our first blood pressure is over 100, then we'll, then we'll start downgrading. Again, as long as that, you know, the next two, which are all, as you know, are manual for any activation or alert, are all manual pressure. So as long as those two are consistently over above 100 and the patient's mentation is doing okay, then I agree. Then we'll downgrade, and you know, and that's what the patient will end up getting. Awesome. And that's another great point. Manual blood pressures in the field. I know some of our agencies only do manual blood pressures, but I know there's some that rely very heavily on the automated. And oh, I didn't know that. I think that is, it's a great tool, right? But manual blood pressures, especially in someone who's hypotensive, is so important because Correct. when you're talking about a variance of six to ten millimeters is like that can make a big difference in right. how this patient gets treated right yeah because a lot of times with the automatic cuff the machine can't tell if the cuff is not a good fitting cuff you can within minutes you know within seconds you get realize okay this cuff's blowing up i'm not getting anything the machine doesn't sense that it just machine it just senses the cuff going up then going down but that's all it does whereas a manual cuff you know the cuff is too big too small not the appropriate fit slid down in the wrong place so i agree that's and that's why all hospitals on any you know high highest activation and then the next the next level of activation, that's what they always do, manual cuff. Nice. Nice. All right. And always, always, always high index of suspicion on the elderly patients. Right. They have different injury patterns. They get hurt much more easily and more meds, more thinners, all that stuff. Correct. All right. I'm going to pivot and change topics unless you have anything else on that. Mm -hmm. 
We were talking a little bit over the last couple of days about, about tourniquets, and, and you said, well, I'll just let you tell it. We had an issue with one, and there's some confusion. Okay. So one of the, you know, I know that as, as far as I know, the tourniquet edu- education that's out there is that, you know, the tourniquet is put on only after other attempts to control bleeding is, is not successful, such as like we all used to do. You know, you put a gauze on it, you put pressure on it, you know, and then if you need to put, keep pressure for a long distance travel, you use an ace wrap or something like that to hold pressure on it. That's what we used to do. And that's when, an, and so that doesn't work, then we go to the tourniquet. So the next thing with the tourniquet is that, as far as I know, we are being, you know, the instruction is you put the tourniquet proximal to the wound itself, um, you know, just as proximal as you can. If it's near the joint, you want to go above the joint. What I'm seeing, though, and, and recently it came up because I, that's what I thought was being trained, but then I had heard from a paramedic from another non-medical professional that they, I heard the term high and tight for a tourniquet. Not the haircut. Not the haircut, exactly <laughs> right, but a high and tight. And what happened was, like, you know, a young kid, uh, 24 years old, you know, unfortunately was working, put his hand through a, a window and, and cut, a, cut a level of the wrist where you can actually see some tendons at the wrist. And so the non-medical professional put the tourniquet high up in the upper arm, right below the axilla. And by the time the kid got to us, he had it was it was so tight that he couldn't even move his fingers anymore. His hands had cramped up, and his fingers, because the muscles had gotten so tight, were actually in a contracted position. And he was getting scared because he thought all of a sudden he was having nerve damage. That's the only thing he was thought about. Is like, I can't feel my arm. Am I going to lose my arm now? Because I can't feel it. And that sort of that was that was his biggest concern. So once we let the tourniquet off. Um, and we had no bleeding from the wound itself, his arm p- pinked up, and he could move his hand, fingers within minutes. And so that was his biggest relief. And so I just want to make sure that what's being taught out there is not a high and tight. You put the tourniquet on, you know, above the, you know, as proximal to the wound itself as you can. And then only if you cannot get control with pressure and a gauze and things like that. And so that patient, <clears throat> probably the best place to start is give them a little bit of gently moistened gauze or just dry gauze and ask them to hold pressure on it themselves, right? Good point, yes. And if that doesn't work, then you can maybe try to elevate it. Or are we kind of not even bothering with the elevation anymore? Okay. Is that still useful, you think? You know, the thing with elevation is that if you have a tourniquet on, I probably wouldn't elevate it because, you know, with a tourniquet on, you, you, both, you obstruct both arterial and venous blood flow. So if you elevate that, you're already having decreased blood flow. Now you're elevating. Now you're having even more decreased arterial flow. Um, and the venous blood flow is not going to go anywhere because you got a tourniquet on anyway. So... I don't think an elevation once a tourniquet on is in place does anything, but I agree with the pressure. If you're just doing a pressure gauze or the patient's holding pressure, yeah, you can elevate that because you're getting venous blood flow back and you're, you're somewhat decreasing the amount of you know pressure head with the blood pressure that way. All right. And so this patient then to the wrist, um, how far from the injury do you want to place your tourniquet if you need to do it? Do you need to be an inch or two away? An inch or two away is perfectly so, fine. So mid forearm is where that should be. Exactly right. And as a paramedic or an EMT, I show up and... Police is already on scene, and they've placed something high and tight. We talk about not taking off tourniquets, but in something like that that is grossly misplaced, is it appropriate to put on a new one in the appropriate position and then take that one off? I totally agree with that. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, do you, is it important to put one on before you take the other one off, or can you just pop that one off and move it down? I think you, you're better off putting one on first, because one of the big issues that we see with tourniquets um, is that you know, they get to a facility or, you know, a paramedic gets there and they're worried about how long we keep it on and they keep on loosening it from time to time. Well, if you have a true arterial bleeder, if you keep on loosening it and popping it on, you just have more blood loss. So once it's on, it stays on. Um, but I agree with you. If it's in a bad position and you want to go lower, definitely go lower. 
you guys already know, if the first tourniquet isn't working, then you put another tourniquet right above that. If that doesn't work, put a third one. But you want to minimize how much ischemic, how much ischemic tissue you're having if you have it too high. Um, and again, you know, for that kid, he was the biggest concern. He couldn't feel his arm anymore, and he thought he was going to lose his arm for that. Yeah, so not only is he having a traumatic issue, now we're creating another issue where he's having psychiatric trauma too, right? Correct. Oh, man. Well, that's, uh, that's good. I'm glad we were able to cover that um, because, yeah, we, we all have these tourniquets now. They're everywhere. We talk about them. We're using them a lot more than we ever did. But I think we're also seeing them being misused. So a quick, easy review. Thank you so much for the time today and look forward to doing this again and just covering quick topics. So Not a problem, Jordan. I appreciate uh, it. As anything else pops up for you, come find me. And anybody listening, if you have thoughts or topics for, for issues you're seeing in, in your practice or in the field, send them our way so that we can cover them and talk to our surgeons about it. So thank you so much for being here, Bert. Thanks, Jordan. Have a good day, man. You too. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Health One Continental Division and Swedish Medical Center for their financial contributions to the EMM. Donations from them and listeners like you make it possible for us to fulfill our mission of producing and spreading free medical education to the masses. If you enjoy our show, please consider making a one-time or reoccurring donation to help cover our operational costs and keep the EMM awesome. Click on the link in our show notes to make a donation. Thank you for listening. (music) 